Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this week we feature one of our periodic play readings. This will be the first of two, based on the theme, Back to School. Quite possibly a theme no one is really all that enthusiastic about. Anyway, our second play on the subject will air next week. This week, we offer you a play entitled In a Trembling Hand, and that's written by Stephen Corbar. The characters are Anne Priest, played by Lisa Frank, and Gary Kleinman, played by Mike Davey. As the play opens, we see Anne Priest standing in front of a house. She's a very attractive woman in her 40s. Her hair and makeup are perfectly done, and her clothing is clearly expensive, though somewhat too young for her. She is holding what appears to be an old letter and an envelope. She seems to be unsure of what she's doing. Gary Kleinman enters and walks up behind her. He is also in his 40s. Hi. Oh! Do not do that. What is wrong with you? You don't just sneak up behind someone, for Christ's sake. I'm really sorry. I I didn't mean to frighten you. Well, that isn't going to do me any good if I have a stroke, is it? Sorry. Is there something I can help you with? Oh. Did you just come out of there? Yes, I live here. Then you must be... I mean, are you... Gary Kleinman? Yes, I'm Gary. Don't you... You don't recognize me? I'm sorry. Should I? Well, I just thought you might. I mean, I did drive all the way over here and everything, and parking was terrible. That's my car. Am I going to be all right there? I don't. I really don't want to get scratched. I think so. Did you want to talk to me? Well, you see, your mother was friends with my mother's hairstylist, and even though my mom's going to a new salon now, I was still able to get your mom's number from the old stylist and your number from your mom. Who gave it, since you did go to high school with me. Anne Priest. You do recognize me. Oh, my God. Anne Priest. Oh, my God. You look exactly the same. Oh, well, people always say that, but I don't know. Wow, I'm just... I'm really so surprised to see you. It, it's been such a long time. My God, how, how many years is yes, it? Yes, like... right. It's been a little while. Well, it's really so good to see you again. How have you been? Great. I've been amazing. Really great. And I've been good, too. Good, good. I'm glad. Well, I know you must probably be wondering what I'm doing here. Sort of. I mean, to be honest, I really didn't think you even knew my name when we were in school. Well, of course I did, Gary. In fact, the reason I came over here today is that, well, I've been going over some things lately, and I happened to find I had something of yours. It was with all my prom stuff, so it must have been from senior year. I hadn't really remembered it till I saw it again, but then it all kind of came back to me at once. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I don't think so. The letter? The letter. Don't you even... Well, you wrote this to me, this letter, and I thought that... Well, I mean, this is what you said. This is what you wrote to me. Dear Anne Priest, it is in a trembling hand I write you these words. I, I know they may not mean anything to you, and you might not even know who I am. I sit behind you in Spanish, too, but we have never spoken. I've sat behind you this past year, and it has become a torture that every day I cannot wait to return to. Your smile has become the sun to me. Like the sun, I feel I've known you always. 
Like the sun, without you there is no day. And like the sun, when I close my eyes for the last time, it is you I would like to look up towards and see shining down on me. Wow. I know that I am no Emilio Estevez and that you could have any guy that you want, but I also know that none of them will ever feel as much for you as I do. None of them will ever cherish you as long, and none but me will ever know the unknowable sweetness hidden in your heart. You are my dream. Please consider my situation seriously. Gary Kleinman. <laughs> Holy mother of God. Well, well, now, now there's a kid uh, who spent a lot of time alone in his room listening to Stevie Nicks. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I counted at least three separate sun metaphors in there. I can't even imagine how I left out rainbows and ponies. So, then what are you saying? You didn't really even mean any of this? I'm saying I finally understand why I didn't get laid until my junior year of college. So none of this meant anything to you? It's just a joke? Do you not even remember giving it to me? Well, I mean, it, it was a long time ago. And... Stop saying how long ago it was. Do you know that I drove all the way over here in this terrible traffic with my GPS broken? I don't even like driving at this time of day. You could get killed with this glare. And now it's just like I went through all of this for nothing, and I could have saved myself the trouble. Okay, okay, please, take it easy. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. I just... Yes. Okay? Yes. I do remember, all right? You just caught me a little off guard is all. I, I guess I really didn't want to... I remember. I remember the letter. I remember writing it. I sure as hell remember giving it to you. And I guess that everything I wrote you with such jaw-dropping subtlety, I really did mean at the time. I, mean, I was completely gone over you. I remember it very, very well. Which I think is the name of some old show tune, so... I guess you can see that I'm every bit as cool now as I was in high school. So then you really were being sincere. Incredibly uncomfortable as it is to admit, I I guess that I was. Okay? So now do I finally get to hear what this little visit is all about? Well, I was getting to that. See, after I found that, I started thinking about things, the past and all, and it kind of hit me that when you gave me that letter... Maybe I could have been just a tiny bit more sensitive than I actually was. You read it out loud in the girls' locker room. Well, I don't remember doing that at all. My little sister heard the whole thing. She was there at the time. Maybe I read it, but just quietly to a girlfriend. You were standing on a bench and kept shrieking gag me after each sentence. All right, so that's what I said. Maybe not always that sensitive. It's already been pointed out to me that it's possible I was a little bit of a bitch in high school. Is that the term your old girlfriends use? God, no, I don't talk to any of them anymore. But, you know, my mom. Anyway, no matter how it went down, I've really been thinking about it a lot. I guess I really should have been a little nicer to you at the time. And I just thought it would be good if I came around today and said that, you know... You're sorry. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. If this were high school, I'd be like, Hey, she pities me. Score! Well, I just didn't want to feel like you were going around hating me the rest of your life. Well, of course I wouldn't do that. 
Do you mind if I ask, is this part of some kind of 12-step program or something? Why? Do I look like a drunk? No, you, you look really, really great. I mean, I mean, you look so much younger than anybody our age, it's incredible. Well, I drink a lot of water. I just read that, and I don't know, I really thought it was kind of amazing that you could feel so strong about me. Yeah, I bet it wasn't anything too special. I'm sure you had most every guy in school totally in love with you. It certainly seemed that way. Yeah, and I'm positive I wasn't the first guy shot down by you. You couldn't possibly have gone out with everybody who was asking you back then. No, but it must have taken so much more courage for you. I, I guess I didn't realize at the time just how touching it was. You mean, considering the hump and my being a, a bell ringer and all? What? Don't worry about it. Look, since you, I've restricted my social life to burn victims and the blind, and I am really just tearing it up. What do you mean? Yeah, I guess it's hard to explain, even now. I was only trying to tell you how bad I felt for you. You know, I think I really kind of prefer the old contempt. At least there was a certain sadomasochistic thrill to it. I don't understand why you're getting all weird with me. I'm not weird. At least nobody has called me that since graduation. Wow, 20 years can really drop away fast, can't they? You think you're safe, and then suddenly, there it all is again, like some horrible old song you hear on the radio. Oh, it's okay, don't look so worried. I'm just having a very slight case of post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, the truth is, I'm really just kind of in a hurry right now. Lots of things to do. I have to go meet my wife. You're married? Who would have imagined, huh? Well, thanks for dropping over. It was good to see you again. I appreciate all the closure. But it's getting late, and I do have to go pick up my wife now. Well, she's at Mommy and Me class with our daughter. You have a little girl. Oh, yeah, but don't worry. We got a Nordic-looking sperm donor. Expensive, but worth it. How old is she? Oh, she's a year and a half. Oh, that's sweet. They're really starting to get so cute at that age. You must be having such a good time with her. Yeah. Do you have any kids? Do I look like I've had kids? No. You, you look so incredible, it's almost scary. I don't know what the rest of us are doing wrong, but I'm looking at you, and I swear I can't even see one line on your face. It's as if... I just got good genes, okay? Well, I'm glad to hear that you found whatever it was you were looking for. That's all I wanted, to know that you're okay. Now I don't have to think about it anymore. I can just move on. You're fine, and I've got a long ride back. I'm all the way out in Brentwood. Wow, Brentwood. Nice. What do you do? I'm divorced. From that guy I heard you married right out of school? Oh, no. He was before. Well, at least you got a really nice car out of it. It's a piece of shit. That prick got himself something new and left me stuck with this. What? That sounds pretty messy. Never should have married him. I wanted things he didn't. Just a waste of time. Well, then I guess you're better off without him. Though I have to admit, I'd probably sleep with a guy for a car like yours. You just think you would. It looks all right from here, but nothing works. The left turn signal is broke. It, it makes this funny noise in second. And I already told you the GPS is busted. I just keep getting lost. Again and again, I don't seem to have any sense of direction at all. To tell you the truth, I really have no idea where the hell I am right now. I probably shouldn't have even have come, but I guess I thought maybe you would be able to help me find my way back. But now, you're busy and everything, and you've got your wife to pick up, and your baby. Yeah. Is she someone from school? 
Your wife. Do I know her? No, she's... no. Well, I'm, I'm just glad you met somebody else. I was really worried about you. You were just so intense in your letter. I was kind of afraid to find out what happened to you. I was thinking of killing myself, but I decided I'd better wait till my mullet grew out. Well, you were trying to be nice, but I realized what I did to you now, well, how wrong it was. It was so sweet what you wrote, and I, I just didn't pay any attention at all. I used to do that. I was just a spoiled princess, and everyone put up with me. I could get away with practically anything I wanted back then. But, you know, things change. A little time has passed, and I, I got a little more sensitive about things. And so when I saw your letter, and I, I thought about you, when I remembered just how much you loved me, and what I ended up doing, well, it just it just kind of dawned on me that, you know, I really wish I had been nicer to you. Oh, I, I thought you were giving this to me. I'm such a 12-year-old girl, I was already planning a scrapbooking night. Yeah, I think it's the only love letter I ever wrote. It's the only... It's very sweet. But don't you think maybe your wife wouldn't appreciate this lying around? Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. It's probably better that you hang on to it. <laughs> you know, maybe if you keep it long enough and I shoot someone famous, it might be worth something someday. You know, I, I never really understood that. That whole idea that certain things somehow get more valuable than they used to be. I guess maybe it's just stuff there isn't so much of anymore. Things that are disappearing. I guess that's what makes those things seem like they're worth so much more now. Well, I'm off. It was good seeing you again. I hope you enjoy the rest of the day with your family. Keep in touch. Yeah, I'll... I'll write. Bye now. Hey, Anne. You really do look great. Thank you. Gary. And that was In a Trembling Hand by Stephen Corbar. We called up Stephen way out there in beautiful 90-degree Los Angeles, California, to talk about the play. And, of course, the first thing that was on my mind was the $64,000 question. Tell me you did not write one of those love letters in high school. No, I did not. In fact, it, it is not at all autobiographical. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, so how'd it come about? Um, basically, I think I was, as I remember, I was, I was thinking mostly about um, the way people change from, from school and the way they in the end, really don't. Um, that I think in this case, the, the female character is somebody who um, seems to have changed the least. Someone who was basically a mean girl in school and uh, continued on through her life like that. Mm, um, she seems like one of those people who had everything handed to her. Absolutely. As where the man... Um, seems like he, as the cliche goes, whatever made you strange or different in, in high school makes you unique as an adult, uh, seems to have sort of graduated, both literally and figuratively, um, 
forward and become someone who is far more comfortable with himself uh, as an adult than he was as a kid. And yet as the story, I think, progressed and as, as it developed for me, um, we sort of found that, and and as to your theme about back to school, right. how very easily um, everyone goes back to school in one way or another, um, that we become maybe more mature versions of, of who we were, maybe more socially acceptable versions of who we were, but something of of that original period always stays with us and in one way or another haunts us if we've if we've graduated to a degree as the man has and, and seem to move on from that, still very, very quickly he's he's dragged back just at the memory of this one girl. That was gonna be um, my next question. Do we ever really uh, escape high school or grammar school? I don't think we do. Um I think Maybe we become more socially acceptable versions of ourselves. Hopefully, some of us maybe don't. But you know, the bullies have to tone it down, and um, the the mean girls can't quite get away with as much. Yeah. Um, but I have a feeling that, um, to a degree, we're all just slightly more mature versions of who we were. And it's very interesting. As uh, um, yesterday, I read over the play again. Uh, because I knew we were going to discuss it. Yeah. And it it was very interesting to me to think that just seeing how people in society act, just uh, I had a political conversation with a friend of mine a few days ago that was very, became very heated. And um, it's interesting that I, I think in a strange way our behavior, even politically, um, kind of comes back to who we were in high school. The, the kind of behavior that we did then just in more sophisticated, more acceptable ways um, is how we, we eventually behave. And um, it's very interesting to me that uh, some people change a lot outwardly and some people not a lot, but I think at the core, I, I don't think most people change a great deal when you say politically do you mean thinking and feeling and having political opinions or acting within a political you know, a I, job I or arena that... because one one is one is internal and the other is how you still deal with people around you i think it's it's at its very core is is the way that you deal with people because i think that um really feeds into how how we behave and, and what side of the political spectrum that we go towards. And just if if we're able to see other people's sides, if we're able to discuss things in a civil manner, um, I, I think a lot of the discord and polarization now um, has a lot to do with not so much the world in general, one of the things that I, I was thinking, and, and this is something that I, in a new play that I just wrote about how the internet has, has um, affected our behavior so much. And we've, I think one of the reasons that we've had this kind of political polarization is very much the internet in the sense that we can now get away with 
being the kind of bullies that we were in high school, mostly because people can can say whatever they want anonymously online, yeah. and there's not a lot of responsibility with it. So we've lost a certain amount of civility, which I think, once again, goes back to high school when uh, kids were able to, to be flat-out bullies mm-hmm. and kind of get away with it. You know, you, you might get suspended at worst. You might get a bad grade. You might get something, but it's not going to ruin your life to... No, it's not. Have a fight with somebody. But these these um, days, bullying can take amplified forms. Where, you know, the the bullied kids, especially, you know, after after they've been bombarded by Facebook and Twitter by their their schoolmates. I mean, we we've had right. we've had suicides. And, right, and the thing that I keep thinking about that is as hideous that is that is, we're going. Why is this happening? But then, if you look at the way their parents are. Uh, screaming at each other on Facebook and having political fights. Sure. The, the latest piece that I wrote is about uh, two people who had a fight online and then meet in a grocery store the next week and have to actually face each other, which is a very, very different thing than calling people idiots online. Absolutely. It's um, face-to-face. That's a whole lot right. tougher. Yeah. Right. And so my my basic idea is that um, we're, we're talking about our, our kids behaving badly in school when adults are, are now behaving just as badly. So, I mean, perhaps that's something to do in another thing I could look at in the script that, um, in this script in a trembling hand, uh, it, it doesn't go into a, a political stance, but, um, it's interesting because the the woman in this play who who was used to behaving badly mm. as a kid, uh, still she's 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 a very rather rude clueless. She, yeah, she she yeah. comes into this man who she hasn't seen in twenty years, who she behaved very badly to, Extremely has ostensibly bad. come to apologize to him, and and is very badly mannered through the whole thing. That's that um, was my next question. He's he. Huh? The the lines he throws at her about you know having the job as a bell ringer and the hump, um, all that self deprecating humor she just doesn't get it. No, she she is far too involved. That that's something about him, and she's basically thinking about herself, um, which is, I think, something that she has done basically all her life because she hasn't had to think of anything else until this moment when. Perhaps she's realizing that she seems to be getting a divorce. She's aged a bit. She's very conscious of the possibility that she's losing her looks, which has always been, you know, what she's depended on. Right. And now that's going, and she's starting to think about the people in her life who seem to have felt something real and unconditional for her. Well, uh, I, I, she, I love the line she says about. Getting, you know, without a GPS, she gets lost, and she was hoping that Gary could help her find her way back. Right. And it's interesting because, uh, just reading over the script, um, his letter to her, how self-deprecating he is and, and the jokes he makes about it, but it's probably the, at the end, we, we realize it's the only love letter he's ever written anybody. It's probably the most not surprising considering and, the, the the result. Right, 
but it's probably at, at that point as a teenage boy, it was probably the most honest and fervent and passionate he's ever been. And this is something that at this very late date seems to have struck her memory that, that someone actually seemed to feel something real for her, but she has not got the tools to appreciate um, that. Yeah. Appreciate it or explore it. Even now she, she's kind of drifted there um, out of need rather than, any oh. kind of feeling for him. No, no, no. This is this is all self-based for her. There's there's no right. actual real th- real thinking about anybody else. One of the things that I started thinking about after I'd read the play for like the fourth or fifth time, and actually heard the actors doing it, was considering the the result he got from you know her reading it in the bathroom and and making fun of him, and how did that affect his future relationships was he ever able to be that open again with anybody i mean this is all pure conjecture but uh right it's it's one of the things Um, that that i started thinking about one of the things um and i I don't know if if this is going to uh interview will play before or after the the uh reading after but one of the things that oh good okay um that i thought was very interesting um and something possibly for the actor to actor playing Gary. I wonder if the talk about his wife and daughter are true. Um, hmm. Hadn't she, thought of that. She's, insult, she's insulting him and assuming that he doesn't have anyone and that he's, you know, this poor, you know, Quasimodo character. Yeah. Um, and, Suddenly he comes in. He's very resentful at the point that she, and he's being very sarcastic. And at suddenly he starts talking about this wife of his, and that he has to pick up the wife at the mommy and me class because they have a beautiful daughter. And I'm not sure that's true. It's something that I I would leave to the director and the actor to to decide and they're wanting how they want to play him. But I think there's a possibility that he is more scarred that he's willing to show. Could be. Um, which is why I also think it's it shows kind of his natural character that as as things go on and he realizes why she's there, mm-hmm. um, he becomes once again gentle with her. And he seems to waver back and her. forth. Yeah, it, he seems to come to the realization at the end that. You know, it's 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 hard to stand up and and be the person you your your dog thinks you are when you've got all this unanswered stuff in the back of your mind. I mean, he goes off right. on her pretty hard. She doesn't get it, right. and then at the end, he just compliments her, and she still can't remember right. his name. <laughs> right, and they they once again kind of go back to playing their original roles where she he is kind of kind and loving person and he can understand and, and kind of forgive her and maybe in, in a strange way um there is closure for both of them. She seems to have even though she maybe it feels like she went there to see if he was still available, if he still felt that way. Hmm. She seems to have been able to take away that 
that, she seems like she needs something desperate to cling on to. Right, that, yeah. that it was some kind of profound love and it just wrecked him to not have her. And he seems to have gotten some sort of strange closure in the idea that um, while, you know, you have, I, I think this play in, starts out almost like the revenge fantasy of, of getting back the people who are mean to you in school. Hmm. And yet towards the end, um, I think he, his closure is that not that he's gotten back her, but that he can truly forgive her and truly understand her. Um, and not so much see her as this idyllic, you know, the, the girl yeah. in the white convertible, the perfect mm-hmm. girl that he's been trying to, but as a human being as who is flawed and, well, seeing each other um, as human beings has always been the hard part. I think that's kind of what theater is all about. We get to paint pictures right. of people we don't really know that well, and I think it's the primary journey of the playwright to discover those things as they go along and right. also of the audience to, you know, if it's a good play, they come out knowing something a little bit more about human nature. But, one uh, hopes. And one, <laughs> one sincerely hopes. Let me move yeah. on to... Um, Something else. I was I was I was looking at your resume, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's extensive. And congratulations, you've had lots of productions. Uh, more power oh, to you. Um, my question is, how do you get three plays into two editions of the Smith and Krause Best Ten Minute Plays of 2010 and 2013? Uh, you send them <laughs> your scripts every year, and um, you you. It, and it's interesting because uh, I don't have any rhyme or reason to why um, those particular plays were chosen. Mm-hmm. And I, I've sent other plays that I think are as good or better and have not gotten published by them. But um, Does it ever really, really surprise you what, what gets picked and what doesn't? Very much. My favorite things that I'm most emotionally connected to hardly ever get produced. I wrote something... Um, about nine years ago, uh, about 30 minute script called Yellow, which is probably my favorite thing. I, I'm very critical of everything and always find something I don't like about my work. And this is a piece that I like very much. And it took nine years. It just is being produced now, actually in Melbourne, Australia. Wow. Hey, um, great. Of all places. And um, invariably, the things that I, I, I'm most proud of and, and feel most connected to are the ones that are hardest to get done. And if I think something, when I finish something and think, boy, this I think I'm proud of. Yeah. <laughs> it's doomed. It's going to sit in the drawer for a while. Right. Uh, and it's... the silly things that I write kind of just knock off, get produced again and again and again. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag because, of course, you're happy to be produced and not rejected. But then you just think, why? I mean, this is something that I put very little yeah. of my own feeling into. And and it's depressing because lots of times people, you know, say, you know, write simpler things. Write, I'm, I'm told I write, I know I write rather dark material. This is actually a lighter piece uh, in a shoveling hand. Um, and people are constantly telling me to lighten up. Yeah. People don't, you know, do more like television. Don't. 
people don't really want to go to theater to think. People are tired and they, they don't want to do that. And so whenever That's a whole I, other discussion what, right there. That is, indeed. But I get it constantly, and you know, I, I see if I'll write a very light comedy, uh, people will rave over it. I will, I will have many productions. I'll get paid, actually. Paid? And, wow! Um, I know, I know, <laughs> as bizarre as that sounds. But, um, and it's a very, like I said, a very ambiguous feeling because in one hand it's great to be produced and paid and Mm -hmm. on the other hand it it kind of confirms the idea that people don't want to be challenged. Uh, So the moments that you get something um, like this play I just told you about, Yellow, actually produced and people understanding it are, are very gratifying and very rare. um, Okay, you say people don't want to be challenged. I see when I'm looking at a lot of different opportunities out there, you know, it's it's, Hmm. wherever they may be. A lot of them are looking for plays that deal with social issues. And Hmm. if you're going to have a play with a social issue at its base, no matter matter what it's, it's built automatically so that people will be thinking about something important as they leave the theater. And I'm not saying it's the overwhelming majority of theaters that out there that are asking for this, but it's a significant amount of theaters that are asking for plays by women, plays about women, plays about race, plays about uh, gender, that sort of thing. And each one of those, they are inquiring for playwrights to come out there with something to say that will reach out to hopefully not just the choir, but those who, you know, are not part of that particular social situation. You see, this is something that I actually, I I know what you're talking about, and I think of it in general as, as sort of specialty theater. And I would disagree in the sense that I actually think to a large degree it, it is theater for the choir. Um, and that's nothing, nothing to, I mean, I admire the fact that these theaters are doing this and that, that they're giving opportunities to writers. Um, yeah, whose voices may not be heard but, anywhere else. Right. And I think that's very important, but I find very strongly that the only place you can get those plays done are at these specific theaters, you know, for sure. the, for, yeah. for women, for gays, for African Americans, and if you go into a general theater, and this harks back to what we were talking about, uh, kind of the polarization politically, I find um, when the only place that that, for instance, if I if I write a play with a gay character, unless it's a broad comedy. Um, I find the only place I can get it done is a gay theater. If I write um, I just, this play I told you about, about the two women having a, a fight on, on Facebook, yes. yeah. um, I found that my the best place for me to get that done is uh, theaters focusing on who ask for women, strong parts for women. What I found is, and I, this is very unfortunate, and it's only my experience, so I, I don't know that it's technically true or by the numbers true, but um, 
I found because of what's going on and how polarized people are now and how unwilling they are to hear somebody else's political view, I found if I write anything political, um, I, I kind of lose 80%, maybe 90% of theaters, and I have to start marketing to specialty theater. And I certainly don't um, have anything derogatory to say about those theaters, and I'm, I'm very appreciative that they're there and that sometimes I get produced by them, but it's, it's a disturbing trend that I've seen that um, if, you, if you really reach out and have an opinion about something, mm-hmm. even if it's this, this play I, I finished, I was very being cognizant of, of this problem I, and, and just wanting to play not to the choir, I was very careful that, that the situation is set up that you don't know which woman, one woman said a very political extreme opinion and the other woman criticized her for it. You never find out which, if, if the conservative woman or the, the liberal woman said what. You, you can pretty much figure out that one is, is on the right and one is on the left. Sure. But I, I'm very careful not to let anybody see which is which. And hopefully, you know, people won't glom onto it. But I know that if I had said, if I had given one of them, you know, a designation of, of, of a political party, and there was something even slightly negative about that character, I know uh, a great majority of theaters that would have thrown it out because they are too scared of offending somebody. Well, that's and, one of the things that a lot of writers have to worry about these days is that, right. you know, it's, it, offending members of the audience is always tricky when you're writing about issues that people feel very desperately sensitive about or, or that, right. you know, it's it have to do with people's, quote, validity within a certain, you know, society or how they're viewed or what they have to live through every single day, being who they are in a world that was not exactly right. built for them, um, which were desperate. And you, would, you, know. you, would, you would think with theater, which, I mean, obviously on, on television or something, you have to appeal to 10 million people and you can't lose 5 million. But if if you're doing theater, you're, your feeling is that, you know, you can afford to offend some people. Um, that's kind of the idea. I seem to offend that, people that, regularly with my work, but I'm going to still <laughs> write it anyway. So. Right. But I, I've, I've sadly found that um, theater is starting to become uh, much like that, especially especially if you're doing anything in, in like a rural or community theater or something like that. They do not want to touch anything mm. that's going to offend anyone. And, and so you get you, a lot of... You have to be selective with your marketing and you have to do the research right. and you have to realize... Right. I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, playwrights mm. out there take note. Um, you need to be smart about where to send your work to. That's one of the major complaints that uh, literary managers uh, get. You know, whoever gets that pile of, of plays every Monday in the mail that they have to slog through and the number of plays they get that don't fit the mission statement 
that don't right, exactly. fit the theater itself um, are it, it's it's an amazing number. I I know from submissions that I've put out for not only the radio show but you know, for um, local productions. I'll say I want this, and I get you know fifteen plays about that, and I'm just wondering <laughs> right. if anybody bothered to read the you know the, uh, the submission notice. But um, I think there's a feeling uh, of well, it, it can't hurt, um, which of course it can because oh, it will hurt. Yes. Remember your yeah. name, mm-hmm. and um, this is the idiot who sent me something <laughs> about you know. Uh, 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 light comedy when I asked for, you know, something about politics or something like right. that. But with my luck, but, that, um, that jerk will probably send me the next Hamlet and I'll just, you know, <laughs> bypass it because I remembered who they are. Well, Stephen Corbar, it's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. And thank you so much for the opportunity to produce and air your play in a trembling hand. And uh, well, we you, wish you the best of luck with... Uh, all your future plays and getting them produced. I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much. Okay. And that should do it. Okay. Okay. Um, so that was, that was good. Got more than I was expecting. And that, that's, that's excellent. Um, okay. So uh, the broadcast will be edited way down because I have a half an hour show. So uh, there's going to be a lot uh, of this. what did the what did the play uh, run at? Well, let's see. What did the play time out to? We um, looking at it now. I'm going to say it ran. Uh, hang on a second. What do we got? Thirteen and a half. I can see that. Most of my, most of my 10-minute plays run about 14 minutes. So. Yeah, well, That's I mean, it's right. mine too. So, <laughs> But um, 